Hi everybody, Peter Thomas Fornital here. Do you regularly enjoy this show or any of the shows on the In The Money Network? Well, do us a favor. Take less than four minutes to fill out our new audience survey. It's going to help us find our partners for 2020 and also to shape some of our content. I'll give you a couple of different ways to find the survey. Probably the easiest is to just go to my Twitter homepage. It's pinned to my page right there, twitter.com slash loomsboldly, and it'll be the tweet that's right at the top. If that sounds too complicated and you still want to help out, I'll give you a long URL to go directly to the survey, https colon slash slash peterfornatal.typeform.com slash to slash coc1y. Yeah, like I said, probably easiest just to go to my Twitter. We really appreciate your help. The race is on and it looks like heartaches. And the winner loses all. Hello and welcome to the In the Ring Pedigree podcast. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital, back with you in the Brooklyn bunker once again. I have given Sean Tugel the week off. JK is out in Arizona. He will be back on the show at some point this winter. But today we've decided to break format, going to do something a little different and excited to bring back onto the In The Money Airwaves, a guy who's been on here before, but not for quite a while, and very happy to welcome back from Glen Hill Farm and the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, Craig Burnick. Craig, how are you today? Very good, Pete. How are you? Things are good. It's uh, sort of snowing here in New York, but I don't think it's going to stick looking at the forecast, which will be a great disappointment to my daughter who was dreaming of getting out of school early. Don't think it's going to happen. So I'm here in the bunker working away and very happy to be talking with you. The thing that prompted me to give you a ring to come on the show this time was a tweet I saw from a couple of weeks ago, I think now, where you were talking about picking the matings for your mares. And at the highest level, I just wanted to ask very simply, what goes into that decision-making process for you? Every mare is different, different in the stage of their career, whether you're starting them off or they're established as a good mare, or sometimes they've had a couple foals and you haven't been successful yet. And you, and you, you may want to change your strategy with the mare. So I, I guess everyone's different. In our case, you know, the majority of our horses we have bred or at least bought as yearlings. So we know them pretty well, what, you know, what their strengths and weaknesses are, what they, uh, you know, and we try to choose a mating you know, that can complement that and hopefully produce uh, a good animal. In terms of making the specific decision, are you using data or are you going old school when it comes to coming up with those pairings? I mean, I'd say a little bit of both. I grew up in Chicago, so I didn't grow up on a horse farm. You know, and all I really had, I was horse crazy from a young age. It's a little bit business crazy from a young age, but all I really had were racing forms and blood horses and then sales catalogs. I really think my grounding in the horse business kind of came in pedigrees and then in handicapping and forms. So I think I'm probably a little bit different than some people that might be on your show and some people that might breed and that I really look at the pedigree and the performance of the actual mare. And I'm probably not as good at the physical. Uh, I have some people that help me with that that are, you know, they know, they know what they're talking about, know what they're doing, but I'd be more into the pedigree. So I like to breed from mares that go back to families that 
have been influential over a long period of time, but we're also looking for performance either from the mayor herself or very up close in the pedigree. I'm familiar with a lot of the pedigrees, kind of know who bred the tail mares in the family, what they've been successful with, what distances, what surfaces. Some of them, you know, might be successful in America. Some might be more successful in Asia or Australia or Europe. You know, so, so, I really, so I really think about the pedigree in that way. I do use a little bit of technology. I'm not a big believer in NICs, but I do love the way the pedigrees look on the, on the True NICs website. So I do use that, uh, I do use that service. It's free. Um, you know, and I've personally been as successful with, uh, with matings that sometimes we're a C or a D than we're an A double plus. So I don't pay a ton of attention to, uh, to the NIC ratings, but I, I do, I do use the service just because it, it, it really makes the five generation pedigree look good, uh, in front of me kind of when I'm studying, you know, what, what goes into the pedigree. I have a few follow-ups already. So people listening to this show, we've got everything from people who are owners and breeders themselves to horse players who are interested in learning more about the breeding side of the business. So for them, we'll back up and talk about what these nicks are. From my understanding, and you just please correct me because I'm still very much of an, an outsider and not all that much of an informed outsider sometimes when it comes to the breeding business. I let uh, Tugel do most of the heavy lifting on that stuff. But from what I understand, this is a computer-generated rating, but it's based entirely on the male line in terms of the sire, obviously, but also in looking at the bottom side of a pedigree, it's going to be looking at damn sire and generations going back, but but all through the, the male line. Is that correct? So you look at a, so if you have a mare, like for instance, you can input her into a nicking website. And most of the stallions are available. I, I think all the stallions in Kentucky, you know, are available to, to, to look at what the Nick rating might be. So if you're, so if you're looking at a mare and say she's by Giant Causeway, what have you, you can input a stallion that you want to breed the mare to, and it will give you, uh, there's a formula or an algorithm or whatever you want to call it, where they'll, they'll take the universe of all the horses that were bred Giants Causeway mares to a specific stallion or a specific sire line, like if it's a stallion that hasn't had runners yet, and it'll give you a rating. So it'll give you the total foals, the amount of winners, the amount of stakes winners, the amount of graded winners, and then it'll compare that to, I guess, the whole universe of horses bred. So you can have a, you can have a rating of whether that's a good or, or the whole universe of Giants Causeway mares, so other stallions. So you'll, you'll see if, like, if you want to breed a Giants Causeway, I don't know what it is, so I don't have my computer in front of me, but if you wanted to breed a Giants Causeway mare to, like, say, Curlin or to a son of Curlin, be it Good Magic or Palace Malice or what have you, it'll, and I have no clue what that rating is, but it will show you, um, like a rating A or A plus or A double plus or D or C or what have you. And then it'll show you the specific, the specific stakes winners um, and best horses bred on that cross. But it only, um, it only looks at sire over broodmare sire. It doesn't look at, you know, female family. It doesn't look, it, it doesn't look at uh, anything like that. And obviously it has no clue of the, of the physical matchup of the mating either, but it is, but it is a, 
it is a an interesting tool. And I know certain. Um, I remember when Ramsey was starting with Kittens Joy, they swore by the Knicks, and you know I thought it was a little bit hokey, to be honest, of a way to of a way to you know start out a stallion. But you really couldn't argue with uh, the success that they had with what looked like largely ordinary mares that were bred to that horse. And um, but but obviously it it uh, it worked out very well. So. That, that that's that's the way I understand the next the, the way it works. It certainly seems like a very valuable data point, but just one data point in a very complicated universe, especially when you're not looking at the specifics of the female families. I mean, I just know from being a horse player how you'll see certain brood mares and their progeny will just outperform. And it, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter who the sire is, but I am going to say it matters very much that you're getting that blood from the other side and and. It seems like the only way to really know what you're getting into in terms of the female families, you got to research it yourself. It doesn't seem like there's a, a data shortcut that currently exists as far as that goes, is there? Uh, not that I know of. I mean, there's some really, there's some really tremendous books that um, John Sparkman's book about female families is. I probably need a new copy because I've, I've read it and referenced it so many times. I mean, that's a that's a very good one and. Avalyn Hunter, she took every classic winner, Derby Preakness Belmont, and then coaching Club Oaks in Alabama winner for like 80 years, and she went through those pedigrees. And you start to see patterns in female families um, start to emerge. And then today, when you look at yearling sales are a little bit different because you're, you're starting with, you're often starting with a physical that you like, and then the pedigree kind of determines whether you're interested in the horse or whether or how much the horse might cost. I think people that buy yearlings off pedigree alone, that that that's, that usually isn't a great uh, a great way to go, especially these days. But you know, when you're looking at broodmare prospects or, you know, mixed sales, I think a lot of times um, you know, you'll be able to find, you know, horses that go back to really good families that are good looking that may be a little bit light in the first dam or two. And you, you can, you can find a lot of value in those, uh, in, in, in a lot of horse sales. If you, if you study and kind of know what you're looking at. We're going to return to this idea of the pedigree versus the physical, but I do want to just mention that horse players I've seen take advantage of that idea too. And I think specifically of Steve Wolfson senior, who was involved in uh, the breeding business for a very long time, and his son, Steve Wolfson Jr., who won the NHC back in the day and then had an even more lucrative second. And I remember talking to him about looking at maiden races and coming up with these angles that, to me, it seemed obscure, but knowing something about the female family, even from generations back, was helping these guys bet winners too. Have you been able to use that same deep knowledge of pedigree you have from the breeding side of the business in your gambling as well at any time? I don't specifically look at the pedigrees um, when I'm gambling first, but if, but if I'm really if I'm really looking into a race closely, I will think about the pedigree a bit, especially on kind of off tracks when when I was a kid my grandfather he had raced a horse called relaunch who was a very good racehorse and became a, an exceptional stallion and relaunch was by in reality and even to this day when you see 
relaunch or valid appeal or you know any any horses inbred to in reality you can often uh you know take it to the bank that they will like the mud there used to be in the racing form like a table i don't know if it was in it every day but at least every week there was a table of uh of sort of off-track stallions and then they would have bold the best stallions for for sort of wet or muddy tracks and um you know, I, I would study that pretty good um, when I was a you know when I was a kid. If you went to the track and it was muddy, I've lost way more money betting on horses because of their pedigree than I've than I've probably made. I think <laughs> I think uh, you know I think it's but I, you know conversely, you know, I've been able to purchase horses that I thought had a lot of hidden value and quality in the family that maybe looked a little bit light up close in the pedigree. Um, for a huge discount, uh, and have had some have had some good horses. So, I, I, I really don't do a ton of pedigree handicapping, um, except for on kind of muddy, wet tracks. Yeah, turf was the area I remember the Wolfsons in particular coming up with some gems when you'd have a, a sire that was meh for turf runners, but the, something in the female family triggered something. And I think there was a high profile example in one of those NHC horses that Steve Jr. came up with the year he was second in that regard. But it makes sense that off tracks and turf is where that's going to come into play the most. But I want to return to that idea of the pedigree versus the physical. We've been told a few times on this show that the pedigree, from a bloodstock agent perspective, the pedigree tells them how much they have to pay they are kind of all about the physical when it comes to picking out runners from your point of view, as somebody who grew up studying pedigree, how do you find that balance? What do you think of that general idea that the pedigree is just something that tells you how much you have to pay and, and where do you fall in that continuum? I mean, there's no question a bloodstock agent, they have to buy a horse that's attractive and a very good physical because that's how they make their living. And they're sending the horse to a, to a specific trainer that you know you don't want the trainer to say what in the world is this like you you want to you want a good looking you want a good looking horse to come the business has gotten very much agent driven versus where it was kind of owner breeder driven or you know owners with long-term relationships with trainers that are racing horses from a family which you, you, you know like for a family which i think was really the history of horse racing and it's it's still that way in other parts of the world but in the u.s there's really a big separation between people who breed horses and people who race horses i guess we we just finished the the breeding stock sales at keeneland and phasic tipton and they just finished last week um at tattersalls and arcana i was actually over there and i think there was one grade one or group one winner sold at Tattersall's uh, one current group one winner Mavs Cross and I think at Phasic Tipton and Keeneland there were like way more than 20 mm-hmm. so you know in Europe most of the people that race horses they retain their best fillies and they breed from them and you know you've got the Darley and Shadwell and the Qatar, you've got the Japanese groups, you've got Coolmore, um, you've got Oppenheimer, you've got sort of long-term breeders that are 
Rothschilds, like old, old, old school, old money, huge wealth that are racing horses in Europe. And it's, you know, there's, there's, there's not a lot of opportunities to buy group one winning mares. Um, I think here you've got people that are commercial breeders that are essentially farmers. They're, they're producing a crop and they're bringing it to auction almost all their horses. And then you've got a influx of people that are coming to race horses. And most of their, most of those people, when the horses racing careers are over, they have to sell the horses at the, you know, at the broodmare sales, um, to reinvest that money in, in racehorses, you know, in the kind of yearling sales the next year. Um, you know, so it's a roundabout way to answer your question, but I might be a little bit of a dinosaur because we still are breeding racehorses that, you know, essentially we're trying to race the horses. So, you know, for me, I love to have good looking horses, but we're, we're very much an owner breeder and, you know, our best horses to, you know, we, we actually had a terrible year this year, but the, the horses that we had that ran in stakes, um, Caribou Club and Chicago style and, you know, decorating, um, last year we had a horse called Family Meeting that won a couple of stakes. We had Summering. They were, they were all homebreds. Um, interestingly, all of their mothers raced for us. And all of them were stake horses. But I, I know as a fact that if we had brought any of those horses that became sort of graded stake horses to the sales, they wouldn't have been the most appealing because they weren't the best looking. But you know, when you look at their pedigrees, they have very good pedigrees. But we've bred for performance and we've sort of called out the horses and the families that didn't do well. That's what we're looking for because we're, we're trying to produce racehorses. But a, but a, consigner obviously they're looking to produce racehorses too but all their horses have to be appealing to an agent that says i'm not going to buy it if it's not good looking i don't i don't care what it's related to if it's not good looking it doesn't meet my standards so they they really have to breed for the physical it's different but that's that's kind of what we look at and when we when we mate our mares for the most part you know at least 75 percent we're breeding to established giants you know that have a track record because, you know, young stallion, they, they may be the most commercial, but you, 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 you have absolutely no idea if a, if a first-year stallion or second-year stallion, third-year stallion are, are going to be successful. I think a lot of people think one in eight stallions hit. You know, but when you go to the market, a lot of people like to be selling first-year stallions and they like to buy first-year stallions because nobody's ever had a poor horse by a first right. stallion. They don't have a, they don't have a, a poor taste in their mouth. Like I've personally been unlucky with certain horses that when, you know, we go to the sales, when I see a horse, the first thing I think about are the bad ones that I've had by that specific stallion. And I'm, and obviously we love them when we bred them and put them in training or bought them. So I'm, so I'm always hesitant to, and I shouldn't be, but I'm always hesitant to go after a horse by a stallion that, we've had a poor record with and the other side of it is we like more of horses that we've done well with just to clarify so when you're choosing those matings are do you feel like you're making any concessions at all to the commercial market and what the expectations of the commercial market is or is it really just all about horses that you can hopefully race and then 
potentially have them go on to be uh, in the breeding business for you or become stallions? I mean, we've had to become more commercial. Uh, and my grandfather passed away a couple of years ago. It was a pure um, enjoyment for him until, you know, for 40 years until kind of 2008 when I came in and it's become a bit more of a business since, but you know, since he's passed away, there's, there's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more accountants in our family office that are paying specific attention to <laughs> what we're doing. So I do have to be, uh, more commercial in our, in our thinking. Um, you know, and there, and, and I think most of the stallions that we're breeding to, they'd be appealing commercially, at least two thirds or 75% of them have a proven track record where they're going to, uh, you're breeding the horses that are still in this country. They're above average at least. And, you know, they've got a track record of producing good, good runners. So I think it, it, it has to come back to performance at the end of the day is if you're only breeding for the market, I like to think you'll sell some horses, but in the long run, I think people always return to breeders and, you know, kind of female pedigrees that produce, uh, produce runners. So that, that, that's what, that's what we're really trying to do. You mentioned before about the difference in the foreign sales and the U S sales and so many of the USA broodmares, grade one winners in general ending up, uh, you didn't mention this, but part of them getting sold means that they're not all ending up here. And a lot of them are ending up overseas as well. Is this a concern for the long-term future of the USA breeding market at all with the, the, the pool getting spread out throughout the world? I mean, I'm sure it's to the great benefit of the rest of the world, but at some point, does that potentially hurt us here in the USA? Yeah, I mean, it has to. The big global buyers that come to Kentucky for the sales, you know, they're not, they're not trying to buy the best horses in book three and four. They're, they're trying to buy the best ones they can in book one and take them home to you know, breed to to their stallions and kind of invigorate their their gene pools. I think we have 500 and some odd graded stakes every year, and they're they're going to be run, um, and they're they're won by fast horses. So I think you know every every year we're going to we're obviously going to be producing tons of tons of graded stakes horses. But when you know so many are going off to Japan or to Ireland or England every year. Yeah, it, it has to it has to weaken uh, our breed in the long run, um, you know. But that that's that's a big part of what drives the drives the yearling sales because somebody like Rick Porter, you know, he sold well, you know Harvard of Grace and Songbird and lots of uh, and they went to Mandy Pope, which obviously they didn't go overseas, but they're not they're not they're not in a commercial operation in this country. You know, we're not we're not having a chance to buy the the foals, the offspring of those of those horses. I guess M- Mandy did sell um, a horse out of Harvard of Grace a couple of years ago, but um, yeah, it, ha- it has to weaken our breed, you know, over the long run for sure. Is it a problem, or and is that, it the cost of doing business? Is it just a is it just the natural evolution of racing in a capitalistic place where 
there's I mean, what, what comes to mind as you're talking about it is the difference between over there and over here is over there. They're not racing for much money. People are doing it for reasons other than trying to make money here. Racing feels like it's more of a proper business for most of the people in it than it is in a place like England or Ireland. It is a problem when so many of our grade one winners are going to Japan or England or Ireland and in Asia, they run for big purses and France, they run for pretty good purses. Australia, they run for good purses. England and Ireland, they don't, but the, it, 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 it's still a business over there. You know, you'll, the winners of races are worth a lot of money. Um, even if they're not running for a lot of money, you'll, you'll run in a maiden race in like Newmarket, and you know this, you're over there all the time, but there'll be 15 runners and you'll run against rulers of countries and titans of industry for like 6,000 pounds every horse. Um, you know, but the, the winner of that race, even if it's just a maiden, uh, that's very prestigious. And if it's owned by a normal person, you know, they're worth, you know, lots of money. Um, so, so it's still, it's still a business over there, but they don't have a, uh, they, they don't have the same purses that we race for. So it's much harder to be in the business of racing horses for your sort of business plan over there. In terms of the, the export of horses to the rest of the world and it, it not being a good thing for the future of the breed here, is there anything that can be done about it or is it just sort of the way of the world? I think something long-term will have to be done about it, you know, with you know, the place that racing in this country is strongest is Kentucky. It's one of the main economic drivers, horse racing and horse breeding for the state of Kentucky. Certainly a larger percentage of Kentucky's revenue would come from horse racing than horse racing would contribute to any other state in the country. I mean, that, that's, that's for sure. Um, but Kentucky has for a long time really been on the supply side of the, the horse racing industry. Um, and most, most Kentuckians are, are commercial sellers of horses, not necessarily racers of horses. And I think, you know, I do think long-term people are going to have to start to race more of their, their own horses. Um, if Kentucky becomes even more important to the racing on a national landscape, like if California were to continue diminishing, you know, most of those people come to Kentucky, buy horses, go out there to race. If the, if the, if the racing goes away, which God forbid, but if, if the racing went away in California, you know, I don't know how many of those people would, would race horses elsewhere because a lot of them are native Californians. So at some point, I do think people are going to have to, the breeders are going to have to start racing a few more of their horses. But, um, you know, right now there's, you know, they're, they're still largely able to sell their whole crop and there's, there's lots of people there to buy them. But, you know, I hope that's always the case, but, you know, with everything that's going on in the business, I think, you know, I think, I think people have to get, have to get ready to race some more horses, which for me is good because I think, I think racing should drive everything. It shouldn't be driven by the breeding business as, as it is now. But, um, you know, right now it's a, it's really a breeding driven sport. A lot of our decisions are, are, are driven to, 
to promote and support kind of the horse sales in the breeding industry. And you'd like to see a world in which the racing itself was a little bit more in the forefront? I think a lot of our industry's problems would be a lot less than they are if if racing dominated the decision-making instead of the market and the breeding and, you know, so on and so forth. We talked about broodmares and where they've ended up. What about stallions? There was a recent kerfuffle with California chrome being exported to Japan. Super Saver, another derby winner, recently going to be standing in Turkey now instead of the USA. Does that give you any pause as somebody who works in and loves the racing business? I think it's a numbers game. I mean, we have no limit on the amount of mares that a stallion can breed. And every year, the number of stallions that breed more than 140 mares increases. And at the same time, the total number of foals or mares bred in this country decreases. So as young horses retire and the flavor of the month is freshman stallions, as they basically retire and go to these stud farms, unless a stallion is hugely successful, people would rather gamble on a freshman stallion, which we talked about um, most buyers have never had a bad one buy a freshman stallion. So they'd rather they'd rather buy a they'd rather buy the dream than oh. buy something by Super Saver. I mean, Super Saver had three grade one winners in his first crop. He had competitive edge. Um, he had run happy. I forget the name of the filly, but she won the Alabama in, in his first crop and embellish the lace. Three years later, whatever he's standing in Turkey, Bodemeister. You know, he produced the Kentucky Derby winner in his first crop, and and he is gone. You know, California Chrome, he he never had a horse step foot on a racetrack, and he was sold, um, all to kind of make room for these new stallions. And no, I don't think it's if a if a stallion fails, obviously I'm not breeding to him, and and, and most people aren't breeding to him. But I think that the the trigger is being pulled way faster than anybody would like, but it's just a factor of being a completely commercially driven business, a declining mare population, and these first-year stallions breeding so many mares that, uh, you know, they just, they take up a huge chunk of the overall. So the established horses that aren't superstars, they kind of go away. You know, the New Year's Day, I think he left after his first crop war two. He went to Brazil and didn't, you know, didn't come back. And then I think um, Maximum Security came in his second crop. Um, flashback: He left Kentucky uh, after his first or second crop. You know, he had the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Philly winner this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of horses that leave. Uh, you know, before. The story's really written. Take Charge Indy left. He's, he's coming back because his horses, you know, have performed better than expected. But he left before he ever had a runner because they weren't, you know, the most commercially popular horses, even though you know, he was a Florida Derby winner by AP Indy out of Take Charge Lady. Take Charge Lady was, you know, I'm not sure she was champion, but she, she won... You know, probably half a dozen grade one races and 
you know, she produced Take Charge Indian, Will Take Charge, and the same family of, uh, you know, uh, Omaha Beach. You know, and he, he left because, you know, he was kind of a nine furlong dirt horse that, you know, his horses weren't the best looking, but he he he, he performed very well on the track. So, you know, the, the, what's going on, you know, it's, it's very, uh, you know, it, it, it can't be healthy for the, for the horse business. I do think um, the jockey club trying to put a, a cap on mares that a stallion can breed would help a, a lot of different areas of the business. I think it would be good for the stallions over the long term. Um, it would be really good for racing because you, you know, if, if only one out of eight or one out of nine stallions hit, but they breed sometimes four or 500 foals before they have a runner, you know, that's going to be four or 500 really bad horses that are on the track in many cases that, you know, aren't that fun to watch run, aren't that fun to own and pay bills on. They're not that great to gamble on, you know, because they might not be sound, they might not stay around. So I think, I think limiting the, the amount of mares that a horse can breed, I think long-term can really only help the business. So I, I hope they can get that through. I'm glad you brought that up. That was going to be my follow-up question because we've had folks on the show, notably Mark Toothacre of Spendthrift, making the case against the cap. You know, obviously a little bit of a vested interest there, but making the point that uh, about market dynamics and uh, tr- sort of trusting the market to figure these things out. Is this an air one of those areas where you think more of an emphasis on racing rather than breeding might be the right decision for the business to make? Or how would you respond to people like Mark and others who have concerns about the planned cap from a capitalist point of view? I like doing business with Spencer Farm because, I mean, Mark and Brian Lyle and, and Ned Toffee and Mr. Hughes, I mean, they, they love to say yes. They, 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 they're, they're very good people to work with. Um, they, have a lot of good customers and you know they've got a business plan to buy these stallions um, and part of that plan is to breed the stallions to as many mares as possible that's why they can afford to pay what they pay and you know they would probably have to change their their business plan a little bit if we switched um, you know I, lo- I love the people at Colmore too and they're the ones that started the Breeding the mares to more, breeding the stallions to more and more mares. Um, but I think overall for the business, you know, if you if you limited the amount of mares that the stallion could breed, the supply and demand would affect the price of each of the stallions, and the good ones would stand for more money. Um, the moderate ones would actually become better stallions because, you know, if if a if a horse like Into Mischief or a horse like American Pharaoh Justify or Curlin or Medagador or you know, any of the top 10 stallions could only be bred to 140 mares, that's going to that's gonna leave many good mares kind of on the outside looking in. So they're going to breed to the next tier horse. And then the next tier horse is going to get way better mares than they ever would have. That's going to make them probably more useful than they are today. And, you know, I'm sure some of the horses would increase in price and it would give some of the other stallions a chance to stay longer. 
and I think you know I, I think I think it would be a lot healthier from a market dynamic perspective. Um, it would definitely be healthier for the stallions. I'm totally for it, but I mean I understand the I, I totally understand the other side of the argument too, and you know their their argument's not wrong for for their specific business, but I think for the overall industry we we would we would all benefit from from a cap. I think it would produce more sound resources over time for all of us to go and watch run and bet on and participate in and it would be healthier for the horses. So I think I think that's what that's what that that's what should um be the determining factor in in in, in the decision. So I, I hope I hope that I hope they're able to achieve what they're trying to do. I want to ask you a Chicago racing question. You talked about growing up in Chicago. Obviously, you and your family have a deep connection to Chicago racing. What do you think is the future of Arlington Park? We're very, very worried about racing in Arlington. It's the second or third largest city in, in the country. It's a beautiful facility. It's got a long history of, of racing. I mean, Buck Passer broke the mile world record at, at Arlington. Horses like Seabiscuit and Equipoise raced at Arlington. The first million dollar race was Arlington Million. Um, you know, and it's 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 probably the best grandstand in the country. It's a great turf course. It's in a good area. It's hard to think that horse racing can't work in a, in a place like that. Um, you know, Churchill's Mr. Duchess West sold Arlington for Churchill stock. It's got to be 15 or 20 years ago now. Um, it was a great move for his family. You know, the, the, the probably the, as good of an investment as they've ever made when they when they sold the track and, and got all the Churchill stock. But Churchill, their behavior, you know, since they started expanding into other racetracks. Um, you know, has been to advocate for casinos at the racetracks and really not put horse racing first. You know, they their their behavior for 20 years at Arlington has been to ask for a casino so that Arlington could be competitive with, you know, Iowa, Indiana, and Ohio, which have alternative sorts of gambling, um, not as nice of racetracks, not as much history of racing, not as big as cities, not as nice of an area, but the racing at Arlington suffered because they never had, they never had, you know, they never had slot supplements for their purses. Or the minute they passed the bill for expanded gambling in Illinois, Churchill made the decision not to apply for a casino um, at the track because they own half of a casino at Rivers, which is right next to O'Hare, which is only maybe. I think it's less than 20 miles from the track. And they thought that, um, you know, the revenue on the gaming machines at Arlington, they would have to split the profit on all the gaming machines with the horsemen to improve purses. But from the actual person playing the slot machine, there were the same odds that that person would get at Rivers Casino. So to the customer, you know, it wouldn't matter whether you went to Arlington or to Rivers, but to the actual corporation that would own the gaming machine it was seen as being way more profitable at rivers than it ever would have been at arlington so they actually just decided not to apply for a casino there so 
so that they wouldn't basically have basically be being competitive for customers between their two casinos. And then the fallout as a result is basically Arlington isn't going to be a viable place for horse racing, you know, kind of after 2021. I think Hawthorne will have casinos and that's great, but Hawthorne's not the racetrack that I ever really think of when I'm thinking about horse racing in Chicago. It's Arlington. So I'm, you know, I'm very worried. I think what, I think what Churchill did was, you know, it was, it was wrong. It was unethical, um, you know, but not, not entirely surprising because, you know, the, we, we've seen that happen with, you know, selling Hollywood park to a, to a developer. We saw them do that at Calder um, with the decoupling to allow, you know, paramutual wagering on Hialai so that they could hopefully have a casino there and close the track. I went to college in New Orleans, um, you know, and since they've bought fairgrounds, you know, they re- they really haven't done much to improve the front side, improve the back side. You know, they've got their video poker place. So, I mean, they're a, they're a gaming company that, you know, owns Churchill Downs and the Kentucky Derby. And they're certainly for horse racing in Kentucky, but their racetracks that they own were sort of used as kind of Trojan horses for gambling. And, that, and that's what they've done. So, answer the question. I don't know what will happen in Chicago. I hope, I hope something can be done, but I'd be worried and not optimistic about it. Do you think it's the kind of thing where the land is worth too much? I mean, what you'd like to imagine is another entity coming in and buying the racetrack and running it like a racetrack, not like a Trojan horse, as you said, but is that, do you think knowing what you know about Chicago and, and real estate, is that, is that just a pipe dream? You know, Illinois has my family's from there. It has it has many of the problems that California has without the beaches and and, <laughs> and uh, the entertainment industry. It's got it's got high taxes. The city has you know s- some high crime, and it's got poor weather. You know, but but Arlington is in a very good area. I don't I don't know how much it's actually worth you know to develop and what would what would go there per se, but I don't know. Um, at the same time, I'd like to see somebody come in and lease Arlington or buy Arlington. But, you know, without a casino, Arlington's going to have the same issues that it's had for the last 20 years, which is poor purses um, and, you know, kind of neighboring states with much better purses. So how are you going to track the, the horsemen? Um, and it doesn't look like Churchill wants to operate a casino there if they have to give a large part of the profits to the horse industry. And I don't know that they would, I I mean, I haven't, I haven't done a lot of work on it, but I don't know that they would be very interested in selling the track and allowing another casino to be so close to the one next to O'Hare, which is, you know, it's one of the most valuable casinos in the country, you know, but so, 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 so I think it's a, I think it's a very tricky question. I mean, they're going to do, Churchill's going to do what's in the interest of their shareholders, you know, and that's, that's really the only option that they have. Um, 
the, the, the Churchill's not in business to improve horse racing. They're, they're in business to make money. And they'll, you know, they're, 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 they make no apologies about acting in that way. And it shouldn't surprise anybody when, when they do. So I don't, I don't know what will happen. I hate to think it will go away, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I, you know, I don't know what will happen there. Very much of an open question. I was actually going to bring that up. I'm not a journalist, but uh, sometimes I play one on the podcast. And in the interest of fairness to them, after we both kind of took some shots there, I was going to say if they were defending themselves, that's what they would say is that they're they're in the business that they're in is uh, making money for their their shareholders. As lifelong racing guy, you know that that doesn't always uh, doesn't feel good, but I do understand where it's coming from. And how do you respond to that defense when you're making your Trojan horse argument? It's not a moral argument or a moral debate. I think, I think the horse industry, um, you know, our industry organizations, our people that are breeders, people that want to race horses, they they, they need to collectively understand that casinos, casino gaming companies that own racetracks aren't going to automatically do right by our industry. And we have to, you know, we, we, we have to understand that when hopefully we come together and can be, uh, you know, can think better about the long-term viability of our sport. I wish I had been investing in Churchill Downs, you know, the last 20 years. It would have been would have been a tremendous investment. I know a lot of people have. There's really no reason to have a debate with them. I mean, if you look at their history of the moves they've made, we know what they're going to do. Um, it's kind of folly to be continually disappointed by them doing what's in their best interest. I think we as an industry need to figure out a way to kind of wake up, smell the coffee, and do what's in the long-term best interest of, of, of our industry. And you know, whether that means taking a bunch of the money that the Jockey Club and Breeders' Cup has and buying racetracks or wh- whatever they might decide they're going to do, you know, we need to have more places to race that, you know, have the long-term interest of horse racing in mind. A lot of these places, they, they, they don't seem to. That was going to be my next question. If the places that are running the, the racetracks can't be counted on to have the sport's best interests at heart and, in fact, have an economic incentive to really not worry about that in favor of shareholders and whatnot – who is it up to to shape the future of this business? It's up to stakeholders that you know want to see the long-term viability of horse racing keep going. It's up to breeders who make their livelihood, um, you know, selling horses to, to people that hopefully want to race them. I'm disappointed in a lot of our you know industry organizations because I don't think that um, you know we've done a, we've done a good enough job of you know, thinking long term about, you know, the viability of racing. I think I think we've done a lot of finger pointing and a lot of infighting. But we haven't really gotten very far. And our, you know, m- m- most people that are invested in the sport, um, you know, their interest should be the same. But it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like uh, doesn't seem like that at all. Doesn't does seem it? like we, <laughs> doesn't seem like that way. Doesn't doesn't seem like that at all. 
Seems like the you, the inter-industry conversations inevitably turn into fights about Lasix and synthetic surfaces. <laughs> at least, at least if you follow horse racing Twitter like me, and, and that's not a rabbit hole I want to go down in this conversation. We talked about racing in Illinois. Let's talk about another place you and your family have a deep connection to, and that's California. We touched on it before. Um, do you have optimism that the, the ship can be righted in California? It does seem like some positive strides have been made. And then, of course, with the incident at the Breeders' Cup. But in general, as somebody who's uh, raced in California for a long time, wh- wh- what are you currently feeling about what's going on out there? Arlington's in a beautiful area with a beautiful grandstand. You know, so are Del Mar and Santa Anita. Um, they, they have tremendous history of racing there, too. They're surrounded by probably more wealth, more wealthy people that can invest in in horse racing than anywhere else in the country. Um, you know, so you have to be hopeful that at some point they can get their act together and you know start to you know, start to improve the sport. They've, on one hand, um, They've borne, I mean, in a lot of its own, because of their own doing, but they've, they've had a terrible year, but kind of out of it looks like, you know, some important reforms might happen. I hope while they're changing, um, you know, a lot of, frankly, a lot of practices and the way everybody operates, they, they don't lose their whole horse population. Um, we left in kind of May and I'd, I'd love to go back, but I, I want to see them have some consistent racing um, and not just kind of have press releases and, you know, CHRB meetings where there's like these big proclamations. Like I'd actually like to see them, um, you know, have a couple meets of consistent racing where you know, the races are being run you know, every day safely, um, you know, before, before, you know, without a press release every week of new things that are going to change and so on. But I'm hopeful because I think people, they really understand um, that if they don't change and get this right, there's a good chance they can lose the business. I think, I think, I think everybody actually is serious about change out there, um, which is probably the first step to making something positive happen. So, so for that reason, you know, I'm optimistic, but you look at the field sizes of their of their stakes races over the weekend. Um, very good horses racing. You know, the the Bast versus Donna Veloci race was was very good, and the Bast has won three Grade Ones, and Donna Veloci's run three times, and she's broke her maiden and been second in the Breeders' Cup and in that race. I mean, I know it was only four or five horses, but. Um, you'd have to have a pretty fast one to go in there and think you're going to run against them. So it's, it's kind of the same problem that they've, they've always had not a lot of depth in their, in their, in their horse population, but the ones that are there are, are, are very, very good. So, you know, how that attracts racing stables from other parts of the country to go out there. They're the one state that doesn't have um, supplements from, alternative gambling so you've got really good horses really good competition really high taxes high cost of labor workman's comps crazy and low purses 
with protesters and you know a lot of uncertainty so um there's every 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 time you mention something out there you think of something else that's a that's a it's an issue but you know i am i am hopeful that they get it sorted i hope craig fravel is able to no i don't know that he has to necessarily clean house but he, he has to uh he has to be able to make major changes and have the buy-in from you know his team from the industry out there and from the state and start you know making some moves that hopefully can uh can write what's going on there so i'm you know, I'm, I'm I'm always hopeful, uh, but th- there, there's a lot going on out there that's that's pretty scary too. All right, I lied. I am going to ask a synthetic surfaces question. My fear with synthetic surfaces is, let's say they go in, let's say they're not rushed in like last time. Let's say they're properly tested and installed in a much more scientific way. Everything works out to the best of what could be expected. You're still going to have fatalities, and I worry that that means that we're still going to be facing the same calls for being banned that we're getting now while reinventing the sport from the ground up. I'm not anti. I'm interested to see the introduction of synthetics in, in places, and I think there's a role for them in American racing, but, but I'm scared about the idea of another headlong charge back into them from California or anybody else. Where do you stand on this issue specifically regarding California racing. We were there when the synthetic surfaces, when there was dirt, we were there when they switched to synthetic. We were there when they pulled out the synthetic. Um, And there's no question that the synthetic surfaces, there were problems. You know, they they were called all weather surfaces that they raced on in the winter in England. Um, It's, 45 degrees and raining most days and that that's not the weather you get in california so there's there was a there was a tremendous learning curve you know california has cool mornings and then often very hot afternoons so the surface was very good in the morning and then it would as the sun would go out it would literally bake and separate you'd have a different track that horses were racing on in the afternoons and they had trained on in the morning. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty of what a good horse was and what a bad horse was. Santa Anita surface was different than the Del Mar surface was different than the Hollywood surface. There were a lot of issues when they put the synthetic surfaces in, you know, 10 years ago. I remember it. I would trade all those problems for the problems we have today, which is for some reason, massive amount of horses breaking down on the dirt track um, and then all of the pressure rightly so in, in some cases from the general public the national media politicians in California you know and so on um, I think those are issues that you know outside influences that can affect um general public opinion are things that our industry isn't really equipped to handle. And we don't have a central authority. We've got all these fiefdoms. Um, we don't have a central communication strategy. So when, so when the general public starts getting angry at us because of a lot of our own failings, we haven't been able to project a positive message or 
have good crisis management on behalf of our industry against kind of those factors. Ten years later, a lot more learning about synthetic surfaces, you know, not like you say, kind of a head first rush in to put them in, but um, you know, finding the best surfaces, the best maintenance people, doing a lot of testing. I would I would trade the issues that we're going to have with, you know, perhaps some more hind end soft tissue issues, which were real, but, you know, there, there's, there's no question that the synthetic surfaces are safer um, from a horse fatality perspective, perspective than dirt surfaces are. When you look at Turfway Park and Woodbine and Arlington Park and the track in Pennsylvania, those are not the same caliber horses that are racing at Churchill Downs and Belmont Park and Santa Anita. So you have the most expensive, best horses racing at the places we have dirt tracks, and you have, frankly, a huge percentage of claiming horses worth $15,000 or less running at the tracks that have synthetics. It makes no sense that the cheaper, worse horses are racing safer than our best horses unless there's something in those tracks that you know, are whether the horses aren't extending and they're not as comfortable on it, so they're not pushing themselves as much. I don't, I don't know the answer, but there's no question the synthetics are safer. And I think that's something that you'd have to take a really honest look at from a from an industry perspective today. Now, will there still be breakdowns? Yeah, I mean there there will if it's if it's if it's 0.8 per 1,000 instead of 1.6 per 1,000. You know, we've, we've, we've have the occurrences of horses breaking down in a race, but it's, you know, it's still going to happen. Um, but I think if we, if we can tell that story that we're racing under the safest surface possible, um, you know, it'll be, it'll be much better. When races come off the turf, uh, because of wet conditions or what have you, I think they're going to have, much fuller fields on the synthetic than they ever have on dirt. That's going to help. Um, that's going to help our handle. That's going to help everything related to the industry. I think it's a move that you know needs to be made, especially in California. Um, you know, but there's you've got really significant people that have been in California for a long time that are adamantly against it, and those people have traditionally gotten their way in California. So. You know, it'll be interesting to see um, what they do. There's, there's never going to be a move in the horse business that's, that's, uh, that has consensus. You're, you're always going to be upsetting certain people. Um, you know, but there's obviously changes that have to be made. Everybody argues against change in the business. They forget that the industry's in crisis. We have declining handle. We have racetracks closing. Sports betting is now legal. Um, we've got aging consumers. Our own participants are dissatisfied with their experience in the sport. Yet, the minute you go and try to change something, everybody <laughs> throws their hands up like you're like, 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 what in the hell are you doing? So, there's a lot of change that has to happen in the business. Um, you know, if we're going to have a sport here in 20, 25 years, I hope that some of those changes can get made. Are you frustrated with the fact that? as part of the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, you haven't been able to affect 
more change more quickly? Or is this sort of baked into the cake playing a long game here? I'd say both. Everyone says, why do you decide to start the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation when there's so many industry organizations? And I mean, I was on the board of some of those industry organizations, but when you try to get those industry organizations to change the way they're operating or to look at the business differently, they don't like to change. You know, we thought we would start a new group of people that are very, very significant players in the industry, you know, that understand, you know, that the the business needs to change. We've, We've set up a board that's basically designed for internal conflict. Like every paper that we've, Every paper that we've put out, um, I think when Pat Cummings sends his first draft to the board, you know, there's six or seven people that say, whoa, I don't like this, I don't like that. And it gets softened a bit in, in a lot of different places. But the reason we set the board up that way is, you know, it's, it's supposed to be, there's supposed to be representatives from kind of all factions of the industry on the board. I think a lot of these boards, they're made up of the same people and they, they basically, it's basically a debate and they, they, they reiterate their talking points and they scream louder and louder. And then whenever they decide they want to do something, there's a, there's another industry organization that's on the polar opposite. It just reiterates their talking points and screams louder. And there's, there's never any, um, there's never any common ground. You know, we've, We've made some headway on the uh, on the category one interference in Canada. Um, that looks like it's uh, it's heading in the right direction, which is exciting, and hopefully that can be the first domino um, that falls. It's it's much more than just a new interference rule. It's actually talking about um, transparency and communication of rules and why they make certain rulings and you know, acting like other sports do, which I hope, you know, if if Ontario does it, um, you know, the hope is that this will occur in some other places. We wrote that paper before uh, maximum security was disqualified in the Kentucky Derby. It's not like it came out after that. Um, It's been a major issue of kind of inconsistent rulings, uncertainty on behalf, on the, uh, you know, from from the perspective of connections, how stewards are going to rule uncertainty from gamblers, how stewards are going to rule, um, you know, when an infraction happens. I mean, we've, we have made some headway on that. You know, we've gotten some positive response from New York on penny breakage. They're the one um, jurisdiction that has, you know, they break to the nickel instead of a dime um, on payouts under $10. And they're the one jurisdiction that um, is interested in going to penny breakage. But you know, you're dealing with um, the gaming boards and the state, and you've got to get a lot of different people on board. But they are interested. But I, I can't believe how long it takes. You know, we haven't gotten any traction on the on the free data and free information, which is actually the simplest thing to do. Um, the jockey club controls the information in the sport. And, you know, frankly, they're the group that's supposed to be working to improve not just the integrity, but the, you know, the, the, 
interest level in horse racing and and you see major sports leagues partnering with data companies to give customers more and more information now that sports betting is legal and you see us still uh you know charging huge prices for information on our racing um that's with less races that's with you know less race tracks they're still charging the same price it's 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 amazing that that they don't you know kind of see it that way but you know frank frankly they don't um it is a bit frustrating but at the same time it's not surprising and it's a it's a long-term you know it's really a long-term long-term process and then you know on the fixed odds uh you know and really the technology changes we we hope that when you know, there's, there's a new governor that Andy Bashir that came in to Kentucky this week. You know, we hope um, that uh, fixed odds pricing will come to horse racing in Kentucky. I think um, there's a lot of people for it. Churchill's against it. Um, I don't really know why, but they're the group that's against the fixed odds in Kentucky. I would think, you know, that being able to bet future book wagers on Kentucky Derby all year would be great them from an economic and marketing, yeah. and marketing perspective. Um, every maiden race at Del Mar and Saratoga, each horse would have a four-digit code. Every horse that was entered in a maiden, you know, and every week you could reprice the odds on the Kentucky Derby. I would think every time a horse wins, you know, when TDN or you know, Blood Horse Daily writes about that race. They're going to say that horse was immediately put up, you know, 250 to 1 for the Kentucky Derby next year or 60 to 1 for the Kentucky Derby next year. Like, I just think it's a natural. Um, we do anti post bets um, in Europe all the time. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. It, 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 it keeps the attention. And I think it could only help racing i think from a new customer perspective you know we in the paramutual tote is is foreign to people that uh you know we're trying to track to horse racing i don't think you know fixed odds wagering is not supposed to replace the tote it's supposed to complement um you know but for new customers uh it's a natural you know college day at keeneland having you know, 15 bets that a, that, a, that a freshman at UK or whatever can can easily bet on and understand. You get them gambling; they start to like it. They'll come back more. They'll be interested. I just think it's I just think it's a natural for a sport, um, and we're, we're working towards that. We've talked to um, Adam Koenig and Damon Fair, who are um, you know basically the speaker of the Kentucky House and the head of the uh, Adam is basically sponsoring the sports betting bill, and they they understand where we're coming from, and I'm I'm really hopeful that uh, that you know it comes in Kentucky. But in Kentucky, when Churchill's against something, you know, usually a lot of people listen. So they've got a lot of money. And uh, you know, what is their argument, the Craig? Thing. What is what is the the so-called steel man argument against? fixed odds. I mean, is it paranoid concerns about cheating a la what 
have. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't. I, I don't know. Um, I know they're against it. I don't necessarily know why. You know, I, I think when um, John Avello went to DraftKings, they had a casino in Mississippi, wanted to have fixed odds on the Kentucky Derby. They were up for about fifteen minutes. Quick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it, now, now. Mississippi doesn't have an agreement. There's no right. horse. You know, there's no. I can actually no understand that. I can understand that. I can, I, I can understand it too, but at the same time, um, the biggest loser is the customer that wants to bet on future book of Kentucky Derby. Like, like that, that's not available to customers right. um, legally right now in in very many places. So, you know, we we talk about trying to grow interest in horse racing. That's what we as an industry should want to do. I mean, Drew Fleming, when he was number two at the Breeders' Cup, was very much in favor of fixed odds. And obviously, he's number one now. So I hope I hope he still is. I mean, I think I think it's just a big opportunity for for racing. Um, and then at the same time, if we don't get it, we're, we're gonna we're gonna have, there's nothing we're gonna really miss out on. Um, you know, so. So yeah, it's a bit frustrating from the TIF's perspective that we haven't been able to get some of these things over the line. I do think um, we're making progress. When you when you see some of the language from the roundtable this year, obviously the Jockey Club doesn't consult with us with uh, what they're going to do, but a lot of their um, recommendations you know, were things that we've been very much in favor of. So, you know, I, I think that's, I think that's really positive. I, I think when you look at Jim McInville's presentation yesterday at the Arizona symposium, I've never, I've never talked to Mattress Mac. Um, and I'm not sure he knows what the TIF is, but there's a lot of things that he's promoting that we've been um, very much in favor of. So I think, I think as we keep, talking and Pat sends out his free data Fridays every week. We've got a new white paper that, um, you know, should come out right after the first of the year, uh, which I think is, is going to be very good. Um, you know, I think, I think the more we keep advocating for you know, sort of common sense issues that can help racing for a gambling perspective and for, for owner's perspective, um, and kind of keep keeping up front, in your face, honest about some of the things that need to change in the business. You know, I, I hope some of these other organizations, um, you know, they work towards it. We don't have um, necessarily a seat at the table, but we all know there's way too many seats at that table and not enough gets done anyway. Um, you know, so it's, it is frustrating, but at the same time, it's a, it's a long-term, it's a long-term project that we're working on. Craig, thank you so much for that deep dive and all manner of industry issues. Kept you much longer than I planned on, but was having too much fun talking to you and learning too much about uh, all these different aspects of the business that you're involved in. We'll come back soon to talk more uh, betting and actual uh, current horse racing stuff. Maybe we'll do that on the other show. But thank you so much for this extended visit today. Thank you, Pete, for having me on, and uh, happy holidays to you and all of the listeners. Talk to you guys uh, 2020.
Very, very cool. That's going to do it for this edition of the show. We'll thank Craig Burnick. We'll thank JK and Sean Tugel in absentia. Most of all, going to thank all of you, the listeners who make these shows so much fun to do. We will be back next week. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's business manager is Drew Coatney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. May the hammer drop your way. <laughs>